Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Customer engagement used to be all nice restaurants and tea times. But with Zoom Info, you can engage with the right customers across all channels from one platform. Engage customers at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh has coined the term interbeing, meaning that we are interconnected. When a Black person is able to obtain justice and peace, all people are going to benefit. It's an illusion to think that somehow the white suburban person in the Midwest is separate. I'm Sigal Samuel. Welcome to The Way Through. We're experiencing a scary pandemic, a huge economic collapse, racial injustice, and social unrest. All these things have us feeling a lot of fear and anxiety. They've also got us asking some big questions like, how do I deal with so much suffering? And how can I be useful to others during a crisis? Luckily, spiritual leaders and philosophers have been grappling with these questions for millennia, and they've left us with wisdom that can help us navigate them. So this summer, my Vox colleague Sean Illing and I are talking to contemporary spiritual leaders and philosophers who can help us put our questions in a larger context and maybe even find something meaningful or ennobling in this experience. Welcome again to The Way Through. For our first show, I talk with Valerie Brown, an African-American mindfulness teacher. For 20 years, Valerie had a high-powered career as a lawyer and lobbyist. Then she radically shifted the focus of her attention to Buddhism. She learned at the feet of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh and was ordained as a spiritual teacher. In this conversation, she tells us about the fascinating historical connections between Buddhist practice and Black activism. She explains how we can use mindfulness not just to soothe us as individuals, but also to tackle broader racial inequality today. And she shares some classic Buddhist mindfulness trainings, which she recently rewrote through a racial justice lens. We know that the coronavirus pandemic is disproportionately taking Black lives. And for Valerie, that's deeply personal. Her brother died of presumed COVID-19 just a few months ago. So here's my conversation with Valerie Brown. Valerie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. And I really wanted to kick off this podcast series by talking to you because I think you're really uniquely positioned at the intersection of two traditions that I think can be massively helpful for us all right now. You know, you're an African-American woman who's really involved in racial justice work, and you're a Buddhist teacher who shows people how to use mindfulness to navigate really harsh conditions you know, like, for example, a global pandemic. So I wonder if you could just start out by telling me a bit about yourself. What what would you want somebody to know? So like many people, <laughs> my, uh, my upbringing was very much a mixed bag. Um, I grew up in the People's Republic of Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, and I grew up with a lot of poverty, um, my mother was a maid in the Hotel Manhattan, and my dad was a tailor in the Bowery. Um, we grew up on public assistance, but I didn't know that I was poor. You know, I just thought, hey, this is like what everybody, you know. Um, but early on, my parents uh, split. My, my dad uh, left. There was quite a bit of violence and then at 16, my, my mother passed away. 
And so that was a tragedy on many, many levels. I became an independent student at 18, meaning that I had no parental supervision and no parental support. But I got really lucky. I got a job at Burger King. And at the time, anybody anybody who graduated from high school could go to college for free. And that's how I went to college. I worked at Burger King, went to City University, and slowly, slowly, or maybe really quickly, quickly made my way out of, uh, out of Brooklyn, out of New York, and really running, running from Brooklyn to graduate school and undergraduate school and the big and important job as a lobbyist and as a lawyer. Um, And I turned to meditation many years ago to address stress. And as a lawyer, you know, at that time, uh, which was about 25 years ago, it was not acceptable to be a meditator, not like today. And so I was really, you know, a closet meditator (laughs) for most of the time. And so I had this watershed moment, I guess that's what you would call it. And in 1995, I attended a public talk given by Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. The talk was at the Riverside Church, and the church was just down the street from my brother's apartment. So I just walked down the street, you know, thought, well, what the heck? Everything that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was saying was the opposite of how I was living my life. You know, I was, you know, this very type A, aggressive, hardened, like this bunker mentality, you know, really just hard as nails from running. I'm, you know, just tremendous internalized oppression, internalized racism, you know, all of this. And when I showed up at the talk, And so I just kind of walked out of there thinking, oh, well, that guy, who is that guy? And But that touched, that day touched something, a spark in me. And I started to practice meditation. I joined a community, a sangha. I started going on the retreats. I started reading the sutras. I started doing the practices. And very, very slowly, over many years, with the help of the community, the Plum Village community, I was able to slowly change. People would say to me during this time that I was changing, they'd say stuff like, you know, you don't seem like a lawyer. Mm. And, (laughs) And I would say, you know, I'd look at them and think, what the heck is the matter with her? You know, I just couldn't see it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I changed on the inside. My values changed, my beliefs, my assumptions, my assessments, my perceptions, all of that changed. And then on the outside, even physically, I changed. My face changed, my body changed, how I held myself changed. How so? What do you mean your face changed and your body changed? So the effects of the fear that I was holding, the internalized depression that I was holding, was actually showing up in my physical body as tension and fear. And so there was a lot of tension in my body. Mm. I was unaware of it because it was normal. I mean, I was on the run, and I had been on the run from... Brooklyn to Burger King to undergrad to grad to, you know, all this stuff. So it sounds like this, you know, this tradition had a really big impact on you. And you mentioned a moment ago the Plum Village tradition, and I just want to clarify for any listeners who might not be familiar with it, that Plum Village tradition is a name for the tradition of the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, that is your beloved teacher. Um, And I imagine some listeners coming to this might be really totally new to Buddhism. And I wonder if you could tell them a little bit about Buddhism as a tradition. There's definitely no one monolithic Buddhism. It's 
uh, a spirituality with a ton of internal diversity, but is it possible for you to pick out maybe a couple of broad principles that underpin it and talk a bit about how you find it to be similar or different from Western faith traditions? That's a beautiful question. So I would say some of the broad principles, two, two things. The first is that Buddhism offers a path of happiness and compassion for people. And this might seem kind of unusual because the very first tenet or the first noble truth of Buddhism is that life contains suffering. So many people read that as, you know, life is suffering and (laughs) there is only suffering. And so to say what might seem like the opposite of that, that Buddhism is about a path to happiness and a path to compassion um, may seem counterintuitive. But one of the great gifts of this great religion, this great spirituality, is that it helps a person to train their mind. You know, we are in a revolution now in neuroscience about the mind, and many people would say too about the heart. And so this ancient practice, this ancient tradition really helps people to understand the nature of the mind, to integrate the parts of ourselves that we often cast off as unacceptable. So once you did get interested in Buddhism and you started doing a lot of trainings, you started going on retreats and training as a meditator and then training as a meditation teacher what was the experience like for you? It wasn't like, I'm going to purposefully become a Dharma teacher. Mm. (laughs) I didn't set out and say, I'm going to do this. What happened was, I just started doing it. I just put one foot in front of the other. I would go, I would read the sutras. I would go on weekends to the retreat. I joined the sangha. And Slowly, with the help of the Sangha, little by little, I started to think differently. My values changed. Um, where, when Thich Nhat Hanh was, wherever he was, I would do my best to go to the retreats and sit at the foot of the Zen master and absorb the Dharma reign, his teachings, over years and years, and g- travel all over to all these different retreats. And so what happened was just over time, I gradually began to change, uh, again, values inside. But then something really interesting happened. I decided, I started practicing this, this, this particular meditation called metta or loving kindness, like where you hold a sense of friendship and regard for yourself and then for the people you like and then for the people you actually don't know and then for people maybe you're not so cool with, you don't really like so much, maybe even people you hate. And then for everybody, all beings everywhere. So I started practicing this and, you know, like just no goal setting, no outcome driven, just do it. And what I what started happening was I decided, okay, let me practice this actually at work. When I'm in the halls of Congress, when I'm standing there talking to the what I perceive to be a very conservative Republican. Now I'm a black woman, dark skin with dreadlocks talking to maybe a very conservative person who may be white from a very conservative and quite segregated, racially segregated area. What I would do when I'm in that conversation with such a person who on one level, my mind perceives that person to be the opposite of me, I would turn to my breathing and I would just notice how I'm breathing. I'd feel my feet on the floor. 
And I'd say these words to myself, soften, soften, soften. And my whole body would start softening. And then what I noticed is that instead of trying to persuade the other person, because this is the job of the lobbyist to be persuasive, instead of trying to persuade the other person of the rightness of my cause, I would switch that. I would take sincere and genuine interest in understanding that other person first. Even if I believed that that person was way far out on the opposite end of how I feel. So I would ask the person, tell me more, um, help me understand. Yeah, how are you doing really? Um, you know, so, and just see it, sincere. I wouldn't open my mouth until it could come out sincere, until I truly believed it. And what happened then was then that other person softened up. And the dynamic between us became relational rather than adversarial. And that was a form of mindfulness that was interpersonal, that was being peace, conveying peace. That was compassion, that was transformation. I didn't know any of that. When I first started, I just did the practice. When you first started, was there any feeling that you got, whether from yourself or family or friends, that there's something odd or there's some disconnect between being a Black woman and being a Buddhist meditator or mindfulness teacher? Or did it feel like, no, there's totally this natural synergy between these two identities for you? So some of my friends uh, didn't understand and that was sad to me that, you know, like I was just in a different place. And so taking the path of Buddhism, some people I I had less of a connection to, um, and but I had more of a connection to other people. In the United States and globally, um, there are few, relatively few Dharma teachers and we know that the world is suffering. We're actually in a probably not only just a health global pandemic, but a pandemic around depression. Mm-hmm. And I would call it a public health emergency. And and so, despite this public health emergency of depression and anxiety, there there are relatively few teachers who have been trained and ordained by a community to help and support with that. And this is desperately needed. And in particular, particularly now, there are few teachers who identify as Black, who identify as in the, by these so-called marginalized groups. And we could name all of them. And this is desperately needed to have more teachers overall, but particularly teachers who can speak from life experience of Black people and people who have been so marginalized, who have been subject to police violence and hatred and discrimination. I'm really glad you're mentioning this because, you know, I think that a lot of people might think Black marginalization and Black activism on the one hand and Buddhist mindfulness on the other hand are two completely separate traditions that have nothing to do with one another. But actually there was this very special and deep friendship between two of their leaders, your teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, In the 60s, they had a blossoming friendship uh, that also had political ramifications. Can you tell me a little bit about that relationship, sort of how they got to know each other and what work came out of that? Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh, or Thai, as he's often called Thai, meaning teacher, shared a real passion for nonviolent, peaceful liberation of all people 
one of the most beautiful things I've, you know, reading, uh, reading uh, Dr. King recently, and you know, and not just Dr. King, but the these great civil rights leaders. One of the things that they say over and over again, particularly with the 1963 Birmingham movement, you know, that they were acting for the benefit of all people, even the people who were the police, who set the dogs on them, who, you know, who abused them. Um, so what I would say is, yes, there was a long, a long friendship that went over several years. Thich Nhat Hanh and Dr. King met in the 60s. They were united by the civil rights movement, by their struggles for liberation. Um, they met at a press conference in 1966. In 1967, Dr. King nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. They met in 1968 at a conference in Geneva. And then there's a lovely story in uh, of Dr. King and Tai in 1968. Tai was at a, I think, a press conference or something, and Dr. King was in at a hotel. They were set to meet to talk, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was late for the appointment. And Dr. King had a plate of food for Tai, and he kept it warm. And Tai is often written about that very tiny moment, which may seem insignificant, but you can you can just sense the personhood in that, the connection of the two people heart to heart, the care and, and the concern over such might what might appear, appear to be such a small thing. And here you have these great leaders who could not only attend to these massive political movements of our time, but could also focus on the very moment, the very humanness of, of care for another person, friendship. It does sound like they connected on a really human, intimate level. And, you know, I know that this originally started because Thich Nhat Hanh or Thai uh, wrote a letter to Dr. King saying, please help, you know, help us advocate for ending this Vietnam War. And Dr. King was getting a lot of pushback from people around him saying, don't get involved in this. You know, you're already dealing with a lot. This is a high risk situation. Just leave it. It's not your business. And Dr. King said, I have not come to this point in my life and done all the work I've done only to now segregate my moral interests, what's happening there from what's happening here, right? And he decided to to get involved in, in advocating about the Vietnam War. Um, and so there was this actually this, uh, this very political dimension to the spiritual friendship between these two leaders. And I think that's kind of interesting to note because I think people sometimes think about Buddhism, for example, as quite disconnected from politics. But someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, was anything but, right? He's he's quite uh, vocal about the political situation around him. Yeah, Sigal, I, I really appreciate your uh, lifting up the, the way in which Thich Nhat Hanh really ignited Dr. King to you know, in his views about the Vietnam War. This is really very pivotal. And I also think it's really important to say that Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, is attributed with coining the term engaged Buddhism, right? Engaged Buddhism, which means, you know, this goes back to the Vietnam War. And so as a young monastic with other monks and nuns in Vietnam, there were choices. They could have stayed in the monastery and prayed, or they could have taken themselves out of the monastery and engage with the suffering of the people uh, in the streets. Now, it's not an either or. Clearly, the prayers would be to to benefit all beings who are suffering. 
But in the case of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh and many of the people at that time, they made a conscious decision which cost them dearly their lives, their own affiliation with the, uh, the political people in Vietnam. Thai was, was uh, isolated. He was not able to return to Vietnam for decades because of his outspoken activism. So we have in this extraordinary human being um, the footprint of how to engage in nonviolent, peaceful action for the benefit of all beings. So this is talking about a time in history in the before times, if you will. And now I want to fast forward to today, if you're okay with that. We're facing, obviously, a global pandemic, and we know it's disproportionately taking Black lives. At the same time, we're seeing this massive upswell of support for Black lives, these protests against police brutality. So given what you've said about engaged Buddhism and Buddhist teachings, how do you think that Buddhist teachings and Black racial justice work can support each other right now? Yeah, so this is a really important question. Um, so what I would say is Black justice is justice for all people. And that's because of the teachings of many people, but in particular, again, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh has coined the term interbeing, interbeing, meaning that we are interconnected. So when a Black person is able to obtain justice and peace, all people are going to benefit. And so it's an illusion to think that somehow the white suburban person in the Midwest is separate from the black transgendered woman in Prospect, uh, Lefferts, Brooklyn, New York. That would be a mistake. We are connected. What happens in Wuhan, China, affects people in San Francisco. That has become very clear to all of us now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the pandemic has really proven this interbeing concept to be true in a very, I don't just mean in some abstract spiritual sense, but in a very scientifically clear epidemiological sense, right? If I am walking around with coronavirus and I don't bother with social distancing and I go out in the grocery store and I potentially pass it on to someone else, um, it's, it's very clear that what's happening in my body and my behaviors potentially are going to impact someone else. So we're kind of very clearly all interdependent in this moment. Um, do you feel like the back on the, the side of the protests against police brutality and, and the kind of movement for Black lives, which of course is connected to the pandemic, given that the pandemic is disproportionately taking Black lives, do you see the the Buddhist teachings or spiritual communities supporting that that racial justice work these days? Have you been noticing that? Well, I can speak to the the Plum Village community um, because this is the community that I have uh, the most contact with. My sense is that within the Plum Village community that there is a great awakening um, and there's always been a commitment to justice, to peace. Again, the legacy of Thich Nhat Hanh is extremely clear. He has set a path of engagement. So the, the path is first and foremost beginning with oneself, not in a narcissistic way, but if we want peace in the world, if we want justice in the world, we have to begin with ourselves. And, you know, there's the caricature of the rageful peace act activist, right? Mm -hmm. Not going to do any good. Um, and so 
this is the work of a lifetime. As long as we're breathing, there's going to be work that needs to be done. And so I think it's incredibly important that we begin that work with ourselves. And certainly the Plum Village, com- the Plum Village community has given us a path and a way to do that, beginning with ourselves. And to turn to racial justice, I think the community has seen the, you know, the, the through all of these decades of work that Ty has done, of the need and the importance of having peace and having justice in the world. Um, and this is, this is a path that the community is on. It's not over. There's a lot more to be done. And uh, we all need to begin. You yourself recently, I think, did something along those lines. You co-authored a new version of the five mindfulness trainings. These are trainings. These are, are words that are often recited in Buddhist circles. Um, they are designed to make us more mindful of things like our consumption. Uh, you know, what what are we consuming? Things like that. Um, but your version reframes all of those trainings through the lens of race and racial justice. Um, and I think you you wrote those just a few weeks ago, right? Can you tell me a bit about what motivated you to write that new version? And maybe even can you read aloud a favorite paragraph that has a special meaning for you? Sure. So how they got developed was uh, I usually take just one of the trainings almost every day. Um, And I'd been recently divorced. Um, My friends often joke with me and they say, you know, like you're a poster child for systemic racial injustice. (laughs) Because um, I recently got divorced. I had to figure out where I was going to live. My brother died. Uh, He had probably the beginnings of COVID-19. He has, uh, you know, many people in my family have all the underlying chronic conditions. You could just go on and on and click off, you know, check the list. So my life is, is a poster child for systemic racism. Even though I'm a highly educated person living in a, in a leafy neighborhood. So I started really thinking of thinking about um, there's a training from the Plum Village community on true love. You know, like, what does true love mean? Mm-hmm. And I'd read that every day, and I was thinking, you know, like, to me, the essence of true love is about cherishing another person. And that what had been happening in my own personal life was a lack of cherishment. And what I had seen in the discrimination and hatred for Black people in particular is a lack of cherishment of our very humanity. And if I could change one thing, it would be to cherish Black people as you cherish yourself, as every person, every being should be cherished. What does that mean to cherish another person? And that really, really penetrated my heart. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to cherish someone, something? Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one 
towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. But today, Zoom Info aligns your sales and marketing teams, identifies ideal customers faster, and automates your go-to-market strategy. So you can scale up and get on the fast track to marketplace domination. And that's how winners win. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. Would you do something for me? Would you read a little snippet of the trainings that you helped write so that we can just hear maybe a bit of one part that feels really meaningful to you. Okay, so here's a little part. Um, So this is the third contemplation. Cherishment is true love. I am committed to looking tenderly at my suffering, knowing that I am not separate from others and that the seeds of suffering contain the seeds of joy. I am not afraid of bold love that fosters justice and belonging and tender love that seeks peace and connection. I cherish myself and my suffering without discrimination. I cherish this body and mind as an act of healing for myself and for others. I cherish this breath. I cherish this moment. I cherish the liberation of all beings guided by the wisdom and solidity of the Sangha. This is my path of true love. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm actually so glad that you picked that portion to read because that happens to be my favorite portion. And specifically, you know, you in that portion, you mentioned this idea that you know, you without suffering, you can't have joy. I think you said suffering contains the seeds of joy. And I know that is something that Thich Nhat Hanh says often. He often says this phrase, no mud, no lotus, right? If you don't have the mud, you don't have the dirt, you can't have the beautiful flower that grows out of it. But I want to talk about this in the context of the pandemic and the protests, you know, on both those fronts, the, the COVID front and the racism front, which are interconnected, there is so much suffering And honestly, how do you find seeds of joy in that? Mm. Yeah, so the best way I can can explain this or talk about it is um, through my brother, Trevor. Mm -hmm. Trevor died on February 21st of this year in New York City. He was on the ventilator and uh, probably on the uh, beginning wave of COVID. Um, I had a lot of suffering to see him die. Um, It was very difficult for me. But one of the things that um, in his online memorial that I realized is that the reason that I was grieving so much and felt so sad was because the love was so deep. If I didn't have, if he wasn't meaningful for me, if I didn't have that love, if it wasn't valuable to lose something, I probably wouldn't be suffering. But it was, I lost something valuable, something meaningful. And so we're fighting peacefully nonviolently for something that is very, very important. And that is for freedom and liberation and justice for a world that everyone can belong to. That's a good thing. That's important. That's something we all should love, all should hold dearly. This is where we need to focus on. First of all, I want to say I'm I'm really sorry to hear that about your brother. Um, and it's 
amazing to me that you are able to just a few months later have such a presence to be able to say, you know what, I realized that there the the seed of beauty in this is that if there wasn't such preciousness here, I wouldn't have felt such grief. Um, you also just mentioned a moment ago, you know, you're fighting nonviolently for this cause that is really important and hopeful, and there is beauty in that. And I want to pick up on that thread of, you know, the nonviolence. Uh, I think that's something that both Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh really had in common, that determination to fight injustice, but from a place of love, not from a place of hating the oppressor. You know, actually, I would love to read this quote from Dr. King that I think is a, a quote that you like too, if I'm not mistaken. He said, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. I don't know about you, but um, <laughs> as a queer woman of color, I find it hard to do that sometimes. Um, you mentioned this philosophy of trying to always see the seeds of joy in even an experience of terrible suffering. But can you talk to me a bit more about how we can keep feelings of bitterness and anger from overwhelming us when we see injustice? And I I'm also even wondering, you know, maybe sometimes anger isn't a bad thing. Maybe it can sometimes be a useful galvanizing force to push us to fight for justice. How do you think through working with anger like that? Yes, it's um, it's an important question um, because uh, anger and rage can feel quite impulsive and fiery. You know, it's very seductive. So I... <laughs> I, I totally understand the seduction of all of that. It it feeds um, it can feed the energy of violence. Um, so this again goes to the teachings of of Plum Village and in Buddhism in general that um, I've learned from the Plum Village community that I can share a little bit. And so the first thing I would say is that um, in, you know, in kind of Buddhist psychology, uh, pop psychology, um, and this is in the Buddhist sutras, uh, the Buddha refers to the mind as like this storehouse of seeds. You know, and there are all these kinds of seeds that are, <laughs> that are in the storehouse, like, and, and, the seeds are uh, uh, likened to emotions. So there's the seed of rage, there's the seed of anger, there's the seed of fear, there's the seed of delight, there's the seed of hope, open-heartedness. There's all these different kinds of seeds. And depending upon our thoughts, our words, our actions, um, these seeds get activated, you know? And so you get caught off in traffic, boom the seed of anger gets watered or activated. You have a, a lovely conversation with a dear friend. Um, the seed of um, gratitude, maybe, that comes up and that gets nourished. Um, or you live with fear of police in your neighborhood. Um, then the feed of distress and anxiety gets you know, activated, and so part of part of 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 um, taking good care of this emotion of hate in particular is number one to recognize when it's activated. Can't do much if you're unaware, and and again, often the sense of rage feels like a flash, you know, kind of taking over the body and the mind. So the first is to just recognize, wow, this has gotten activated. And the and there's a kind of step-by-step -step process. But after that recognition, and this can happen pretty quickly, 
you know, within a few seconds, is to, once we notice that, that, uh, that the person is activated, that rage is present, is to calm ourselves through what we have that's a constant, and that's our own breathing. And this takes time, you know, it may not be something you go to right away, but with with time and with practice, we can use the breath to calm ourselves down. There are other things we can do to calm down, you know, there's lots of research on trauma that talks about what people can do, whether it's going for a walk or getting a glass of water or talking to a friend but to resource ourselves, right? To track, notice what's happening, resource ourselves and come back to the breath and and noticing, you know, that, hey, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's happening in my body, right? And breathing with that, taking very good care of that energy not suppressing, not denying, not calling it disappointment when it's actually rage, right? To be very clear, this is rage. This is not disappointment. And then taking really good care of that. And that's a, that's, that's a major practice. So I love that quote that you started with from Dr. King, and I probably recite that every day. You know, how do I not succumb to the temptation of bitterness? How do I not succumb to rage? Well, what I've come to understand is that that bitterness is a constriction in the heart. It actually makes me smaller. And so the invitation, really the instruction is to be, to play in a bigger space. And the bigger space is love. The bigger space is compassion. The bigger space is peace. That's way, way bigger than bitterness and hatred. Way bigger. We are, we are, we're called into a bigger space and we're up for it. And that is the practice. I don't know. I've got to say, I've got to be honest, for me to move from rage to love, that's a tall order. Like, I, I don't. I don't necessarily know how to do that. How would you advise someone to move from that more constricted emotional space to that much wider emotional space that's a bit more open-hearted? Yeah, I I really uh, love that question. Um, So there's actually a practice that precedes all of what you just said, um, which I I didn't talk about. and, and that is the practice of stopping. <laughs> so uh, shamata in uh, the Pali, I think it's the Pali. Um, it's the practice of stopping, stopping and calming. And so um, this, is quite, uh, this is quite a practice. Um, and so... In stopping, it's actually an art form. So to to stop, it's not just, Thai calls it the uh, precondition to healing. Not a condition, but a precondition to our own healing is to practice stopping. And so part of it is pausing, you know, like just a tiniest little timeout. So it, it, you know, this doesn't have to be a huge grand thing, but even the tiniest pause can interrupt this, that, that white blinding rage. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, somehow, sometimes there's this sense that unless I do 100%, not even 100%, 110%, then I'm doomed for failure. (laughs) (laughs) We just like hold ourselves to this really impossible standard. So even if we can do the tiniest pause and celebrate that, 
That's a step in shamato or stopping. If we can, if if I can catch myself, right, even for the tiniest moment and turn to my breath, that's a victory. I agree. Going to love is a massive move. We're, that's like the North Star. Mm-hmm. You know, we're heading in that direction. And I can just give you an example of what I mean. That happened to me just a couple days ago. Right? Please. So usually in the morning, I go for a walk and I walk up a big hill near my house. So I set out early in the morning. I'm walking up. I get to the top of the hill. I'm out of breath. And there's a woman up there with a leash. No dog, just a leash. So I'm kind of out of breath. And she says to me, hey, if you see this, if you see a dog, it's mine. And I said, uh, I don't live here. I, and she said, okay, bitch. Right. Whoa. <laughs> so I stopped. I practiced stopping. Right. I stopped. I paused and I breathed and I was breathing with all with that word bitch. And what came over me was a feeling of peace and sovereignty. That I was sovereign over my own emotions. I did not have to react to her in kind. The old me, (laughs) the old me would have followed her and probably gotten in her face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Buddhist or no Buddhist. Um, But that's what I mean. I was able in the moment, because I had practiced this so many times, to stop, to pause and to breathe and not to respond in in retribution and retaliation. That is sovereignty. That is peace. I'm just curious. So did you say anything to her? No. You just walked it? Yeah, you just continued on with your way? <laughs> no, because I didn't need to say anything to her <laughs> because I was celebrating. I was celebrating the the tiny victory I had that I was celebrating the peace that I had created in myself. And actually, um, afterwards, and I offered her meta, Mm. like clearly she was irate and and suffering for for some reason, for whatever the reason, the dog's gone or whatever. But this just happened. So in a meditation later, you offered her some meta, some loving kindness, mentally directed it in her direction. Yeah, not even mentally, but but really from a heart sense. Right. You know, like this is a person unlike, you know, like just like me who has irritation. Not unlike me, but just like me. Mm. You know? What you're saying reminds me of this old Buddhist sutra, the discourse on the five ways of putting an end to anger that I know Thich Nhat Hanh is fond of. He's done a translation of it himself. And one thing it says in that sutra is if someone is being unkind, they're probably suffering a lot. People don't act cruelly or in a brutal way if they're really peaceful and happy inside. Um, So one thing I think that sutra mentions we can do is realize, oh, this person is suffering a lot. So that can maybe... If I can remember that, that could help spark a bit of compassion in me for that person and maybe help me move the needle a bit from rage to love a little bit, maybe. (laughs) Um, And another thing that it says in that sutra that I really like is that the way we choose to place and direct our attention is crucial here. So if someone is acting 
you know, with unkind words or unkind behaviors, um, we can choose to really focus our attention on what they're doing that's unkind. But the sutra says, try to actually just redirect your attention to what in this person is kind, is good. And that might be really hard to find, <laughs> uh, depending <laughs> on the person. It's true. Right? But, you know, the the idea that you have, again, like I like you used the word sovereignty. You have sovereignty over your attention. So you can choose to place your attention not on the awful word that the person uses, but instead on, oh, you know what? This person seems to have a lot of frustration in them. I also have frustration in me. I get it, you know? Um, so that simple kind of shifting of attention can can be helpful. Um, does that does that sound right to you? Yeah, you know it does. Um, <laughs> um, it reminds me of a calligraphy that Thich Nhat Hanh has that says, um, "Are you sure? Are you sure?" Mm. You know, uh, I know for myself, I can walk around with very fixed ideas, very attached to my own views, and so one of my deepest and most profound spiritual practices is to ask myself, am I sure? Um, and are, you know, what are my perceptions, assumptions, master assessments, assessments, beliefs? You know, what is the lineage of all of that? Where did that come from? How was that developed? That is a very important spiritual practice. And so to keep asking myself, am I sure? Am I how am I attached to whatever the perception or the views are? And out of that, that, that kind of loosens up things. Mm -hmm. You know, when when we're when you have that kind of mindset, that mindset that says, well, you know, I've got this idea, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not right. You know, do you kind of hear the breath in that, the flexibility in that, the openness in that? That allows for whatever the suffering is, whatever the aversion, to have some breath. And so, yeah, so then we can meet people where they are and maybe find the tiniest bit of goodness and kindness in the person in the circumstance, and absolutely, it's a challenge. What I think we, uh, what I see many people happen or what they do is we want to go from like zero to 60 in 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. And part of this is, you know, kind of a remembering that, you know, this is a process, it's a journey, takes time. It's like the Russian nesting dolls, you know, uh, one thing rests upon the next. So this m mindset of, you know, I'm not sure I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I could be right. I could be wrong. It's not to, you know, tie oneself up in doubt, you know, and in Zen circles, of course, we, we know that the great doubt has, has value. Um, but it's um, it's a kind of openness to the views of other people without a sense of attachment, clinging. You mentioned the great doubt. You mentioned this phrase, are you sure? I think one of the phrases I hear most often in the Buddhist context is this concept of taking refuge. That idea of refuge is quite beloved in certainly in the Thich Nhat Hanh Plum Village tradition, I think in others too. Um, and, you know, Buddhists talk about taking refuge in the teachings, the Dharma, in the practice of meditation, in the Sangha, the community of practice. And I want to talk about refuge in the current moment uh, where we're all dealing with a lot of stress and suffering. I think if all one is after is a sort of temporary refuge from suffering, Let's say I want to feel less anxious about coronavirus for an hour. Um, there's a term that people tend to use for that trap. It's called spiritual materialism, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you're just getting 
into meditation or, or whatever because you want this really just temporary material benefit. You want a refuge for an hour where you're not feeling stressed. I wonder if you could tell us what you think is a better way to understand taking refuge, what refuge means to you, and you know how we can kind of engage with these practices in a way that's not selfish, but is engaged with the broader ethical and political issues we're all seeing right now? I think it's a really important question and um, delighted to respond. Yeah, so the the practice of taking refuge, we take refuge in the Buddha, uh, the, that we are all, we all have the capacity to awaken in this lifetime. Uh, and some say in other lifetimes, I take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community that lives in with a sense in and with a sense of harmony and awareness. Um, so yes, taking refuge is really important, um, especially at this time where things feel like there's so much upheaval. And that may feel like a really grand thing to say, to take refuge. And that can be as simple as taking refuge in this moment, recognizing I can breathe. I am alive. I can make a difference. I can contribute. That's taking refuge. That's not a small thing. There's countless people that cannot do that. The other thing I would say to the spiritual materialism is that, you know, we live with a kind of forgetfulness. I myself am totally forgetful. Uh, and yet we know that one of the foundations of mindfulness is ethical. There's an ethical component of it. Often, um, you know, in many Western, particularly in the United States, you know, you see mindfulness like sold mm -hmm. in so many different packages, right? You know, like totally. So it's all about focus, attention. Um, you know, like so I can do more, and so I can get the promotion, so I can buy the car or whatever the thing is, right? And um, I even hear as I sing that myself a kind of cynicism to it. Um, and so I, I want to even question that, you know, my own belief around that. But I would say that I've seen a lot of that materialism myself. It's sad because the there's such a, a critical component of mindfulness, which is about the pro-social good. What are we doing not only generating happiness within ourselves, contentment within ourselves, peace within ourselves, but to share that with other people. We are quite good, particularly as Americans, of uh, pursuing materialism, pursuing happiness. Not so good about generating it within ourselves and sharing that with other people. And so the basis for the whole practice is about creating a better society, a more peaceful society, a more compassionate society. And this is something that we really uh, cannot lose sight of. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder to when anxiety is taking us to the future or the past and actually just to take refuge in the present moment and remember, I can breathe right now. I am actually okay right now. I actually can do something to generate happiness within myself and to contribute in this wider way, the, this engaged Buddhism that you talked about. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention to our listeners that we didn't get to before we sign off? Um, one thing that I would say that I, I didn't get a chance to say is my spiritual practice is also grounded in the tradition of the religious society of friends, the Quakers. And yes. uh, yeah, and just this amazing connection with uh, the Quakers and with the Plum Village tradition. And I really do believe that 
the Religious Society of Friends can make a, a real contribution to what's happening in our society today. If you were to share one spiritual insight or one ritual practice that the Quakers do that you think can help listeners in this moment, what would it be? This is, comes to me immediately, um, and that is the practice of bearing witness. You know, in the Quaker tradition, we 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 witness. We we are there. We're present for whatever is arising. And you know that we've had a long tradition of not just not only bearing witness, but nonviolent, peaceful action to support that witness. So I said I would say this is hugely, hugely important for for all of us today to be a witness to what is happening, not to avert our eyes, to say yes, this is this is where our society is at, and we can take action. Thank you so much. Valerie, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. I'm so delighted. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. If you liked today's show, make sure to catch the next seven episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share with your friends and family. If you want to learn more about Valerie Brown, you can find her at leadsmartcoaching.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Seagal Samuel. Our producer is Jackson Bierfeld. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcasts to find more of our shows. Businesses have always needed customers. So customer engagement has always been a thing. You know, steak dinners, golf, in-person handshakes. Not exactly efficient, though. But thanks to Zoom Info, times have changed. Now you can engage with the right customers across all channels and grow your business efficiently and effectively, all from one platform. Sorry, steak dinner guy. We've got work to do. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.